Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tame Kell. And today we're going to talk about a topic that comes up in almost every domestic relations case. What is that, Wade? Well, we're going to talk about attorney's fees in domestic relations cases, and we're going to kind of have to start with an apology, aren't we, Tame? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for the way that I've behaved on previous podcasts. No, not that. This. Oh, oh, okay. I we, thought there was something I did. Well, there was, but I just assumed. <laughs> we've thought we record. We Tane and I have taught this subject of attorneys' fees in general, and then attorneys' fees in domestic relations cases on a number of occasions to different groups. And in recording podcasts, we frankly thought that we had recorded. I know we recorded an attorneys' fees podcast in general eons ago. But we thought we had done this one. And in fact, we promised you that we would do this one, and then we didn't do it. So we are very, very, very sorry for our lack of diligence. Thank you, Wade. You're welcome. So now that we are here, now that we have realized the error of our ways, let's make this one one of our best, Tane. Excellent. Let's do that. (laughs) <laughs> Excellent. You sound like Wayne's Party on. Um, all right. So attorney's fees in domestic relations cases. There are a number of statutes that would allow for attorney's fees to be awarded in cases that would involve domestic relations. But you know, there must be statutory authority to grant attorney's fees. That's the whole nature of attorney's fees. They're they're contrary to common law, and therefore there must be a statute that that allows it. But Tane, there's one factor of attorney's fees in domestic relations or any case really, that always must be proven or or you have to find it and tell the folks what that is. It's always reasonableness. Is that right, Wade? Yeah. I, I just thought you were going to elaborate. I didn't know you'd become Garen Mueller all of a sudden. Well, no, I, I mean, there's really no need to elaborate. In every single case involving attorney's fees, the judge has to make a finding that the attorney's fees are reasonable. And, and there's really no need to elaborate any further. It's as simple as that. The judge has to make a finding. And if the judge doesn't find and, and, and essentially state that the attorney's fees are reasonable, then that could um, be a reason for reversing an attorney's fees award. That's absolutely right. Um, But what does reasonable mean, Tane? I mean, that's, that's a pretty vague term, isn't it? Whatever the judge says it means, Wade. Oh, magic. It is one of those magic things. It's one of the standards that uh, that the judge has to weigh. And usually you do give some reasons for finding uh, whether something's reasonable or not. But, I mean, literally, attorneys need to state in their place that the fees that they are charging are reasonable in their own jurisdiction or uh, with persons of their number of years of experience. And, and those are usually the factors that are considered in making a determination as to whether the fees are reasonable. 
So, folks, there are a, a, a whole bunch of statutes. And, and if you'll go to the goodjudgepod.com, that's goodjudgepod.com, you will find a wonderful chart that basically goes through each one of the statutes that that we believe are, are, are likely to come up in some scenarios. And it will tell you in the right-hand column exactly what is required to be proved in order to make that award. In every one of them, it says reasonableness, but all of whatever other factor is in that chart. And I know I use it every day. Do you as well, Tane? Yeah, I mean, I have a stack of cheat sheets next to me up on the bench that I use, and this is one of those go-tos. So let's start with one of them that you probably see more than any other, and that's 1962. A lot of people call this the equalizer statute. You cited a statute, Wade. Oh, I forgot. Every time a statute is cited, an angel gets his wings. Um, we know, we know, y'all love us reading law and citing cases and statutes. And Tane's, Tane's on Zoom pointing at me. I have no idea what he wants me to do. Then I just realized because I was the one talking. Nineteen six two. In all honesty, it's one of those things that applies to cases involving alimony, divorce, and alimony, or contempt of court arising out of either an alimony case or a divorce and alimony case including but not limited to contempt of court orders involving property division, child custody, and visitation rights. And again, I hate reading statutes, but I'm telling you it's in the statute that, that this is probably applicable in most of our domestic relations cases. And the only real factor that the judge has to consider, other than reasonableness, is the relative financial resources of the parties. And listen to what he says there. It's financial resources of the parties, not just income. That's right. So that when you are making your, say, a divorce case and you're dividing assets, that's be that would be one of those things you would want to consider. Is is, is does the division of the four hundred one k or the house equity or whatever? How does that change the relative financial resources of the parties? Even though their current income may be very different, it is one of those things that you have to consider. But that's really sort of. All you have to consider that in reasonableness. Tane, this one comes up probably more than any in my court. Is that true for you too? Absolutely. Although I will have to admit, Wade, it sometimes gets cited to me as the reason for asking for attorney's fees in cases that don't involve that list of cases that you uh, just went over. And uh, just remember, folks, that's an exclusive list. It can't be used in, in other cases. Yeah, I didn't hear anything about modification there. But anyway... Now, Tane, you have lots of skills. And, well, thank you. And, and I have always been incredibly impressed with all of your skills. But one of them that has, that really, frankly, surprised me was your ability to explain 91514 A and B. Oh, well, thank you, Wade. I thought you were going to compliment me on the impression of Governor Brian Kemp. Um, <laughs> which is also pretty spectacular. Uh, yeah, I've encountered this statute a lot, Wade, over the years, not just in uh, domestic relations cases, because, of course, OCGA Section 915.14 applies in all sorts of scenarios in civil cases. And uh, it's essentially a two-part rule. And I've come up with a little, uh, a little way of explaining it that I think it makes it easier to remember, because the two different subsections, subsection A and subsection B, really apply in very different scenarios. 
Subsection A is what I'm going to call the BS section. And subsection B is what I'm going to call the jackass section. So I explain that this way. Subsection A applies where the entire action was BS from the very beginning. In other words, when you filed this thing, you knew or should have known that there was no claim there, or at least that there were no facts to support the claim there, and that you couldn't prove any facts to support the claim when you filed it. Now, that could be the whole claim. It could be one certain subsection to the claim. It could even apply to a counterclaim. But whatever it is, subsection A only applies if the entire thing was BS when it was filed. Subsection B, on the other hand, is what I call the jackass section. And that is, once the claims were filed and established, you conducted yourself in a manner of jackassery, which I believe is, in fact, a word, um, <laughs> that caused the opponent to have to expend attorney's fees in order to defend it or to respond to it. And, and really, that's how the two sections work. And so as long as if you bring a claim under subsection A, you can prove that it was all uh, ridiculous from the beginning, a waste of time. Uh, or in subsection B, if you can show that a portion of that statute, or I'm sorry, that statute, that action uh, in some way um, was brought or, or, or used to uh, cause the other side unnecessary trouble or expense, uh, increase their attorney fees, basically waste time, uh, then you can get attorney's fees for that. So under OCGA section 915.14, uh, one of the things to remember in the final award is that you need to identify which subsection the award is being made under. So if you're the judge, be sure and cite either subsection A or subsection B. Um, and then once you've made that award under that subsection, be sure to make the appropriate findings of fact, not just the reasonableness determination, but the appropriate findings of fact that would entitle someone to recover fees under either one of those subsections. Tane, a couple of questions since you are the 915.14 A and B expert, the expert on jackassery and uh, BS. That's me. This can actually be brought based upon a motion post-judgment, right? That's right, up to 45 days after a judgment, um, which is interesting because it's one of the few attorney's fees motions that's allowed to be um, made during the time when the case could technically be on appeal. And it's also allowed to make the award against a party or a lawyer, right? Or a law firm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there have been a few very rare circumstances in which, particularly under subsection A, um, I have found it to be appropriate to bring the action against the attorney or the law firm. Very rare circumstances, I might add. All right. So people get 9-15-14 confused with 13-6-11. And, I, and this, there's a very simple and easy way to, to draw the difference between these two. That's 9-15-14 right. involves, what was it, BS and jackassery? That's right. BS and jackassery. During the litigation. Right. 13611 is bad faith during the underlying transaction that led to litigation. So That's in other right. words, if you if it's bad faith as it relates to something that happened to cause I guess litigation to be filed, you can consider 13611. Otherwise, if it's bad acts during the litigation itself, it's 91514. That should make that differentiation real clear and real easy. It should. <laughs> Just yeah. saying. Yeah, people get them really messed up. So, Tane, 
if you had to guess, how many times have you heard a lawyer or a party say, Judge, he's in contempt. I want attorney's fees. Goes to court and you say, What's the code section? He says, You know, the contempt one. Oh, yeah. Hear that a lot. Not a thing, huh? There is no specific statutory section for an award of attorney's fees in a contempt. Um, that doesn't mean you can't get them. Obviously, if you could satisfy the parameters of OCGA section 9, 15, 14, you might recover under that subsection for some sort of jackassery that happened during the lawsuit. But uh, there's not a contempt statutory attorney's fees sub, uh, section. So as Tane's talking about, we have this, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, the chart, you would have to meet the obligations of 1962, for example, the equalizer statute, the inequality of financial circumstances. Just because somebody is in contempt, there's not a contempt code section. Now, you may have heard me when I was mentioning 1962 and kind of talking about the, the, the statutory language. It can be applicable in a contempt action involving divorce or alimony, but that doesn't mean that it is an automatic. And again, it requires proof, uh, 1962 does, requires proof of inequality of income. So just remember, there's not a, oh, yeah, he's in contempt. We're going to use that code section. And it's also never automatic. And that's the other thing that people don't understand is just because you plead attorney's fees, uh, request for attorney's fees, doesn't mean you automatically get them. You actually have to put up some proof. You actually have to make some sort of showing. Uh, you actually have to put in what your attorney's fees are and what your hourly rate is and uh, how many hours perhaps that you spend on that particular item or on the case in general. So it, it the, the uh, inquiry doesn't end with you standing up there and saying, oh, and judge, I want attorney's fees. So folks, you're going to be able to find a in full memo. I think it's 23 pages of memo in case sites. On our website, Tane, tell them where the website is. Goodjudgepod.com. And at that location, you can go and find this memo if you want to read the paragraphs and sentences. But the other thing that you're going to be able to find is our chart, which we'll get to in just a moment. But Tane, let's talk about making the award on the – when you're making an award, do you have to cite the statute – that justifies the award of attorney's fees? Absolutely. Um, just in, as we've just gone through, there are certain circumstances where attorney's fees are appropriate under different statutes. And so it's always important for judges when you're writing an order to cite the statute under which you're going to give attorney's fees. And if you're in my court or in Wade's court, you know to expect the question, well, counsel, under what statute are you requesting these attorney's fees? Now, Tane, I can't tell you the number of times that I have seen lawyers sort of lock up when it comes time to to talk about attorney's fees because they don't know if they have to hire another attorney to come in and testify to the reasonableness of these fees, whether they can do it by stating it in their place. The law is pretty clear on this, isn't it? It is. Um, you don't. You are not required to bring in another attorney. It is sufficient for the attorney to state in their place uh, that attorney's fees are reasonable, uh, that they are uh, essentially in conformity with what the uh, local uh, attorneys would charge in that same area of specialty and with that number of years of experience. 
And you do not have now you can bring another attorney in if you think somehow that will uh, enhance your claim for fees. But in my courtroom, simply stating it in your place is sufficient. But again, you have to state it, you don't just get to assume that all of those factors are applicable. Now, when you have lawyers who try to submit their billing information as their statement in their place, I don't have a problem with that as long as they they give me the verbal testimony or statement in their place that they are that these fees are reasonable and how much they were and how many hours. I mean, they basically verbally put on the record what is included in their billing sheets. Do you have any problem with that? No, I don't. I, I feel the same way you do. But understand something, and this is important. Most attorneys' fees statutes require a hearing before attorneys' fees can be awarded. Now, because before, because the judge has to make a ruling on the reasonableness issue, and in order to do that, there has to be some showing that's made, and the other party has to have the right to refute that or uh, or or ask them questions and cross-examine them on that. Yeah, so, and and that's another thing too. When an attorney states attorney's fees in their place, as a judge, you need to turn to the other party and say, any questions? <laughs> now, normally they don't have any questions, but sometimes they do. And it's certainly appropriate for them to go over the bill or ask some questions about uh, uh, the hourly rate or something along those lines. So folks, we have, we have teased this up long enough. Um, one of the things that I decided to do a long time ago when Tane and I were teaching this, and I've, I've tried to keep up with it, is to create a chart. I'm a chart guy. I think I'm a visual learner. Uh, the, 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 um, the folks at ICGA would call, ICJE, excuse me, would call me a visual learner. In this paper that we have on goodjudgepod.com, we have listed all kind of statutes that authorize the award of attorney's fees that probably would come up more in connection with domestic relations cases than others. Like 91514, it would be equally applicable to any civil case, but 1962 is clearly only applicable to a divorce case, but they're all in here. We have created a chart that on the left-hand side, do you, you like this visual where we're going to tell people what they're going to see on a piece of paper? I do. I think that's really appropriate. Down the left-hand side, we have the code section. And on the right-hand side, we sort of have a bullet point list of what must be proven to justify an award under under the code section. Tane, for example, 1962, tell them what it says on the right-hand side of the chart as it relates to 1962. It says, must consider financial situation of parties, fault not at issue, prevailing party not relevant, quote-unquote equalizer statute, reasonableness finding required. So folks, literally, as you are in your hearing, you can flip to your handy dandy chart or scroll to it if you're computer literate and make sure that you can check, 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 make sure all of those elements were, were established. And if they weren't either, and, and, and Tane, tell me what you do with this. When it's clear an element has not been established, that for whatever reason, reasonableness wasn't even testified to. It was just that I charged so much an hour and I had to spend this many hours. I've been practicing law this long. Do you ask the question from the bench? Do you let it be unproven? How do you handle that? 
I'm kind of a mean judge in that respect, Wade, because I feel like if it's your request for attorney's fees, you're responsible for making your case. And just the same as I wouldn't try to ask you about venue in a criminal case necessarily or something else that's an important element. Normally, my only question is anything else, counsel? You know, Tane, not long ago, we talked about uh, commenting on the evidence and how this would not be <laughs> determined to be commenting on the evidence. And admittedly, that's usually in a criminal case, but kind of the same concept here. I mean, if you want attorney's fees, you probably ought to open a book. Well, God forbid you open a book. You ought to open Westlaw or, or uh, Lexus or whatever and scroll to the code section and you should do the check, check, check as a lawyer before you come to court, right? Or you just go to Wade's chart at goodjudgepod.com. Nice, nice plug. See how smooth this is? Folks, we are that's very... Ra that's radio right there, buddy. That is podcasting at its best. Okay, easy. Um, so folks, this this is the episode that we had promised long ago. There is a lot of information in the memo slash chart that is on goodjudgepod.com. We're not going to bore you and, and sit around and read code sections. But, for example, the code sections include cases under the UCCJEA, cases for custody, cases in the public assistance, cases for child support. All of those statutes that authorize an award of attorney's fees, at least the most the ones we see more most often, they are in the chart and addressed in the memo. That's right, Wade. So with that being said, this is Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell. And Tane, I guess it's it, it, it that finally gets in the books, those, the session or the episode that we promised long, long ago. I think it was worth the wait, Wade. Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions, and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that, and we really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Hey, Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap up this session? <laughs> yes, Wade. Yes, I do have some thoughts. Tom Petty was right. The waiting is the hardest part. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.